Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is pretty much Pop a Culture Podcast, single cam, triple threat. Today we're discussing the role of the director in comedy filmmaking. I'm Mark Linton Meyer, born on the first take. <laughs> Sorry. I'm Erica Spires, and um, I didn't really read this script. I just kind of like to go organically and see how I feel. Excellent. I'm Brian Hurt, and to get ready for today's show, I tried a movie with a promising title called Joker. It was kind of funny. And our guest. Hi, I'm Heather Fink. I direct comedy films, and I'm excited to be here. Welcome, Heather. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. You sent us some of your stuff. The audience won't have heard your stuff. We'll link to it. But I often don't know exactly what the director does, as opposed to the producer, as opposed to the director of photography, particularly in a comedy. Because like, if it's a Scorsese film or something, still, it's probably director of photography stuff you're thinking of. Like, let's do a long Zoom shot, and let's let's make a single shot that runs... 20 minutes, but like in a comedy in particular, we sort of think like, well, if you have the funny people, then they'll make it funny. Maybe the editor chooses among their things, but can you help us focus on what the director specifically is adding? Yeah, there's no difference between what a director does in a comedy versus a drama. What a director's role is on set versus the producer or the director of photography is you are the person who, yeah, you come in with a vision, but you decide how you're going to cover the scene, for example. We're going to do two close-ups and a wide shot, and you have a plan for... You do collaborate with the cinematographer on the shots, but the cinematographer does not tell you what the shots are going to be. Typically, you'll have discussed and thought about, we want to do this wide shot in this scene. And, but there's this difference between your all your planning and prepping, which you have to do a ton of, and what happens on the day. Because on the day, all of your plans come to life, your location, your props, and your actor's who may or may not have had a rehearsal, depending on your style or your choices. And the role of the director is to give the creative direction to all other parties. So you're in charge of the creative direction. You will get the feedback from the technical people on here's what we think is a good idea. The director ultimately says, no, I want it more like this, or it should be like this. And then yes, you guide and craft the performance. Great locations and casting in a way, like if you set those things up, some directors are more hands-off, they do a little less. And if you're lucky, you don't have to do too much. Although I think good directing, you are very active and participating and crafting what happens. But the director alone is really the only person who should be talking to the actors. If a producer has a note or a cinematographer has a note, like the actor should move more like this or that to help the camera, they have to filter it through the director. And there's so much nuance in who can talk to who and who you're supposed to talk to on set is a really big part of filmmaking with good reason. Everyone needs one clear direction, like we're doing this. And everyone on set has an opinion about how things should be directed. So it is definitely for the good of the film and everyone involved that only one person is like the grandmaster of, no, we're doing it like this. And especially when it comes to crafting a performance, it is a definite no-no for people who aren't the director to get in the head of the actors or give them feedback like that was a good take if it wasn't what the director was looking for. (laughs) One big responsibility of the director, just in a technical sense, is making your day. Like you say you have a lot of takes or this and that, and you have to prioritize. And then the role of the producer is 
the most confusing because it's very amorphous and there's so many types of producers. There's like executive, associate, regular producer, creative producer, and it differs from features to television. I do mostly stage work. So when you hear the word producer, sometimes that means a huge exec. Sometimes it means the people who write your paychecks. Sometimes it means a person who came from out of town to watch your show because they gave some money to it. Is it the same idea in like, how do all these people get called producers? Do you have to have something to do with money or can it just have something to do with creative development as well? It's actually a mixed thing. Like executive producer is like something that sounds nice, but they don't typically do the work that the person who's just a plain old producer generally does more work. But there's usually multiple producers and they have different roles that they decide amongst themselves. And some producers are hands-off and some are very hands-on, but they're the business people of the industry. And I can say also a bit, Erica, that if, like, for example, you wrote something that's being adapted you might get some kind of producer credit. It's just a way for them to get an extra piece of the action on the money side. So they get a producer credit. That's right. They'll have more ownership. And then if they do have that producer credit, they can have more input. Sometimes actors are really at the mercy of the other creatives and they don't have as much say on like what happens in the next episode or something. And if they are a producer actor, for example, or a producer writer, they have more agency on set to like give input. I mean, it really depends. It depends how much money they give. It depends how much value they have. That's something to find beyond the credit. The credit doesn't really say. That is a trend I've seen a lot in movies and series like Mary of Town, for example, like Kate Winslet is a producer of that. And I would assume that that's one way in which people do protect themselves on a set as well, right? I hadn't thought of that as like, not only is it a money thing, or not only is it a creative thing, but it's a, hey, this other person I'm working with is making me feel uncomfortable. But now I'm a producer, I can actually do something about it rather than just asking somebody else to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, the industry is changing a lot. Actors are having more say and more agency. But a lot of times actors are treated really poorly. You hear a lot of awful stories that go on behind the set and they are cut down or made to feel less or less. Their input is less important or meaningful. So a producer credit does acknowledge their importance to the project. It helps. So... For example, I directed something and the the people behind it were like, oh, you know, you kind of went beyond directing into more producing stuff and we want to acknowledge that with this credit. And I was like, okay, sure. I'm not really looking for producer credits, but as an independent filmmaker, I always have my hands in that because when you work on a small budget, if you want to do what you want to do, you can't not think about logistics and money. And you always have to think, like as a director, I have to know with this budget level, what tools do I have? Can I use a crane on this shoot? okay, so I can't use a crane. How else can I make the camera move? And I have to just think about my options and what I can do with it. And those kinds of decisions are absolutely like they fall on the director. And just to answer the question about TV versus film directors, the saying goes that television is the writer's medium and movies are the director's medium. There are exceptions to this. If you see a series where it's one director for every episode, it's going to be treated more like a film set. But most directors are guests on the set of a television show where the actors are there every day, the writers, it's their baby, and the producers. But there are director-producers on series. That's like a bigger trend. And there's even actor-directors and stuff. So, But you're not going to go in given one episode on like Grey's Anatomy, which has been going on for two decades, and know better the characters that these people have been living in for so many years, you know? 
So you're a guest on that set and you defer to the writers and you have to, for example, get the text exactly right versus like a Judd Apatow series might not be like it's established and understood maybe on a show like Crashing that we're going to work with improv more. But a lot of shows, you must get the exact dialogue that these writers wrote. All right, I'm going to go to the topic of comedy. And I know you're a a filmmaker, Heather, but I'm something of an expert myself because when I was in high school, (laughs) I watched uh, the filming of Ferris Bueller's Day Off for a full hour during my drama class. And it was actually the scene where Jeffrey Jones and Mia Sara are talking to each other. And that's when it was revealed to me what a tedious process filmmaking is, where just the same set of dialogue just keeps getting recorded from different angles, like the entire length of my class. And looking back on that, it strikes me that comedy is so ephemeral that you really must have to have a lot of faith in what you're doing to still seem like what you're doing is going to be funny by the time this whole thing gets put together. I would think you would be so numb to your humor in the process of making it that it's hard to, I wouldn't say it's hard to have faith, but you just really have to have a lot of faith that, yeah, this is going to work in a way that I think may not be the exact same thing for drama or horror or some other things where it seems a little bit more like you might be locked into what you're doing. What's been your experience with really knowing that something was going to work? The process of making comedy, I mean, you still have the same thing, right? Like you said, you film it. Our typical days that we work on set is like a 12-hour plus day. A typical scene might be like a half a day for the scene or a whole day. You might get two scenes done a day. So yeah, you're doing the same thing over and over again for hours. And that is always a challenge for actors. Like for example, the movie Fences directed by Denzel Washington was based on a play and the actors were so excited to just get to do it in order because it just felt more natural. And that speaks to how frustrating it can be for actors that you do a thing over and over again, you might lose the magic takes. You tend to be very short. You're really breaking things up into pieces. With comedy versus drama, I mean, improv's used in drama too. And you want to feel the life of it on the day. And sometimes people save it for the close-up or something. Or you, the director might tell the actor, no, this is really where this moment's going to play. This is the shot. And the truth is, like, when someone's rehearsing for a play and you do many performances of that play, every time you do try to get into it and you try to nail it. And you want to do as few takes as possible. When I direct comedy versus drama, I do work with improv and I could talk about that. That's like a different kind of conversation. There's a way to, you kind of like do the script as a roadmap and you give yourself the opportunity for improv moments. But when you have the edit back, like it's funny, like no matter how many times you shoot something and you get your footage back, your very rough cut is always terrible and you hate yourself and you're like, I made every mistake and I'm terrible. Almost everyone goes through that every time. But comedy is so much about the timing that it's not funny till it's funny. And your cut is going to suck and not be funny for several passes. And you tweak and you tweak and you get the timing. And then eventually it gets there. Or you have to find creative solutions to fix problems if it's not working. So a lot happens in the edit room. But this is the same for comedy and drama in a sense, like it doesn't work, maybe get it the emotional reaction you wanted. It's a similar thing of like, are you getting the laugh? Are you getting, are the beats or the timings right of the cuts to get what you wanted to get out of it? Now, timing's way more important with comedy though, for sure. When we're talking about timing and we're talking about reaction, like a two-person scene or something, do you find that it's typically beneficial to do that more like a wide shot so you're getting the real-time reactions 
or to film it separately and then editing in the timing. Another saying is like that comedy lives in the wides. However, as comedy has evolved, there was a period of ugly cinematography that happened probably around the 90s, especially with television. And we're talking about like the video cameras didn't look that good yet. A lot was still shot on film. But you know that flat lighting of a lot of sitcoms? And it was used a lot of wide shots and you'd see the body a lot. But television has evolved to be more, way, way more cinematic, including comedy. There's certain moments where the physicality becomes important. You want to see the whole body. But typically, you know, I'm going to do this scene. I'll have my wide where you can see the both people and we'll film that. And I'll do the most takes of that. It's almost like a rehearsal. Like sometimes I'll rehearse, get a chance to rehearse with the actors before we shoot. But here's where we really like go through it. And I don't move on from the wide until I feel like we, okay, we have the rhythm and the feel and we found it. And some improv can happen there. But where I really enjoy improv and play is on the close-up. And it's a style choice. And, you know, the the other actors, they're for the other side, of course. They're just off camera. So some people do multiple cameras. They do two cameras at a time. And sometimes I don't want to compromise the lighting and the cinematography to do two sides at once. Judd Apatow does do always, like, a camera's on each person. So, like, if magical improv happens, we'll get it all and we'll just be able to cut it together. I don't necessarily need that. When I'm on that person's close-up, We kind of remember what we like the best. I like to do a thing called a series where you give the actor a chance to do a specific line over and over, or I'll say, hey, try another response to that. Try another response to that. And somehow it magically works just fine to like then go to the other side and they try. But I also gave them a lot of room to try a lot of stuff. So then I get to cut it together. But it makes sense because, you know, they're both there. But we've played so much in the wide. And Ideally, certain scenes, you do find the time to rehearse before you film. So you already did improv before you have the camera on them. And they tend to be able to have fun, even though you're doing it 100 times. It takes so much time to move between shots and reset everything up that they're like bored. So they're, all their energy comes out. So have you found that good direction can just elevate pretty much any material? Maybe just as just, you know, have you received a script, say for a commercial or a short film, something that you're maybe lukewarm on, but you feel like, okay, if I could get funny enough people and, you know, if we do this totally deadpan, there are lots of ways to interpret it to actually make it come to life. Directing is execution. The script is like the roadmap. It's the substance, but the execution, it's like how you do it. Like sometimes the shittiest scripts (laughs) can be well-directed. And I've even been on, or for example, Black Swan on page, it would be an entirely different film without that heightened style. Or even like The Shining. I know that Stephen King was bothered by the casting choices because he's like, Jack Nicholson's already crazy. Shelley Duvall's already lost it. Like, how are you casting (laughs) these people? How's it going to work? But Kubrick had a vision and he knew exactly, like, you know, Steven Spielberg would have made a very, very different Shining. It would have felt completely different. So like, yeah, the story would have been the same, but the feeling, and I was on set, I, I did the New York unit of Get Out, which was really just, they, they reshot the finale. And the Jordan Peele I knew before Get Out came out was the comedian. And on that set, I was so impressed by him because he knew exactly what he wanted, but what we were filming was so weird. <laughs> and it didn't make any sense to me. And I love that movie. I think it's brilliant. And he did an amazing job. He had a singular vision that was unique that no one, I don't think, ever expressed before. So being on set with him didn't make any sense to me. And I was like, what is this going to be? And he really surprised, I think, everyone. Here's a specific helpful example. 
one thing directors should learn not to do is give line readings to actors, which means don't tell them how to say it. You find a way to use verbs so that it's something in their brains, you know, you have to get into to get that performance out of them. Find a way to get it out of them so that they are the ones doing the work on their own. Don't turn them into puppets. Let them do the work. It's a challenge to change your thinking to not just tell them how to say it. I was recently on working on a a really big show with a very, very famous actor who I had previously respected as an artist. There's a scene where a character dies. It didn't come out yet. And the performance is like so bad. Like I lost respect for this actor in a way because she was just crying so much. And I'm just like this fucking director. Like, but of course I had to keep it to myself. I was just doing sound. Yeah, no, Heather, I, I don't think I heard. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you said what her name was. What was the oh, actor's no, name? Oh, no, I can't. Again? You I can tell never, us. No, I you can can't. tell us. No, I absolutely can't no. tell you the name. I mean, Please unless you us. didn't include it on the podcast. The debut of Erica Spires. Hey. Hey, hey, hey there, Mark. Careful. I want to ask Erica, though, in light of Heather's comment, do you get that from your directors? Is this like puppeting? Because I remember, you know, I was a director in high school, and I would totally tell them how to say the lines all the time. <laughs> like, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. It's the worst. <laughs> I sometimes will get notes on specific things and every once in a while, I'm like, I'm always okay to try it because you never know if you try it, maybe you'll actually love it and you'll find something, but no, she's totally right. So I'm like wondering in this case, why was the respect lost? Was it because the director had to be there telling everything that she needed to do? I mean, it was just something in me and I get frustrated that I'm not directing. Of course, I'm like, oh, they're leaving this freaking actor out to dry. It's a terrible performance. Like this person's getting news that this other character died and they don't react with surprise. They don't take it in to try to figure out, did it really happen? They just full on, like the, the actor, I guess, is so proud of herself that she can make tears happen and like, that's great and all. And it's just, it was all day and just the crying. It's like zero to crying, which is so unrealistic and annoying. And I think the director who was like not super seasoned, it was a TV show, so it wasn't, you know, like a big movie, like to just want to interrupt this big deal diva actor. And it was like, oh, you're leaving her out to dry. This is Maybe they can call something in the editing room. But it was like, to me, bad soap opera acting. And I just, it was so frustrating. But yeah, the line reading thing is something that if this means anything, I only do it with non-actors and children because they don't have a craft and they don't have an ownership. It's not as much of a collaboration. And so children and non-actors, if they really don't have that acting bone in their body, like that's the only ones who'll get the line reading. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you got to get a product out that door. I'm a teacher as well. So I try to get my students to come up with their own ideas and I guide that. But there are a few where you're like, oh, do you want me to tell you what to do? And they're like, yes. I'm like, okay, we can start from there, but please try to make it your own. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes when an actor is really struggling, I have been in moments where I was like, do you want a line reading? And every now and then they would say yes, but a lot of times, no. I mean, I'd rarely offer it. It's just every actor has their own special needs. And that is part of the fun challenge. Like, You know, I sent you guys a link to, there was this TV pilot I directed that took place in a school environment. And it was one of the most diverse sets of actors I ever worked with, like so many different ages and different, like, you know, this one has a theater background and that one has never acted before. And that was one of my favorite things to direct because it it was like, oh, I have to unlock the magic secrets of this person's performance. We could not put up this podcast without sponsors. And so today I want to tell you about Upstart. If you're carrying a credit balance month after month, it can feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of debt. 
Upstart can help you make that final payment so you can get ahead. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment. Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score and is expanding access to affordable credit. Unlike other lenders, Upstart considers your income and current employment to find you a smarter rate for your loan. My family carried credit card debt around for years. It's very easy to think you're never actually going to get out of that. And a debt consolidation with a lower interest rate than your credit card is charging you is a very, very smart first step. You should definitely research all the options available to you. I'm just asking you, make Upstart one of those things you research. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate upfront for loans between $1,000 to $50,000, and you can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payment today when you go to upstart.com slash pretty. That's upstart.com slash pretty. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash pretty. So a lot of your stuff has somewhat sexual situations in it, if not like overtly sexual situations. So I always have questions about that because, and also you're making it funny oftentimes. So there can be very serious situations that are happening and we have a comedic spin on it. And I'm just wondering a bit about that, what that process is like as a director. Do you have intimacy coordinators? Do you end up doing that part on your own? What are your steps to still... And I know this question has been asked of a lot of people just in terms of intimacy in general, but I think it's probably a little bit different when it's intimacy in a comedic situation, especially when you're dealing sometimes with something that could be a very dramatic situation if it's not in a comedic movie. So there's a reason why I do a lot of sexual stuff. It's kind of part of, I feel my unique voice as a creator. And not everything I make is sexual, but just for so long, I felt a lot of problems in society are related to unhealthy sexual attitudes. And we have a lot of sexist ideas about women and their relationship to sex as being very like prudish or they don't want it or they're not interested or whatever it is. And I just think that in cinema and in our culture, we are lacking the female point of view that wants and enjoys sex and it shouldn't be, you know, so we still are lacking characters who have healthy attitudes towards it. And I think that could help our society. So that's why that's often a topic and things that I explore, but not everything, but just a lot of stuff. It's gotten better. But this question of an intimacy coordinator, they did not exist until the past, like, I don't know, two or three years. They didn't exist until Me Too started happening as a reaction to that, which I think was like fall of 2018. And okay, so first of all, there's intimacy coordinators. I'm not psyched on them because they have no formal training or qualification. And I've been on set with some who were great and helpful. For example, on the show Euphoria, the intimacy coordinator there was the best I've ever been around and super respectful and just like was really playing this role of like, we're respecting this actor. I was on another show the intimacy coordinator was bad and like made such a big deal of such small things that it made the actor uncomfortable when it was stuff that didn't even bother them and wasn't even that. It's like, you know, you have these rules, okay, cover, close set, like skeleton crew, like only allowed people and co- everyone cover the monitors so everyone can't see. Sometimes that's called for, but sometimes I'm like, ask the actor if they want that. Or do they not want you to make such a big deal about it? Are they fine with everyone seeing? Like, ask them. And I feel like sometimes it's not being asked. So before intimacy coordinators existed and I did sexual things, I mean, I personally was very respectful and didn't want to be, I mean, I acted in my own movie. I had no desire to act in my feature film. I had cast other actors and then a disaster happened. (laughs) 
And so I acted in it as a reaction to that. And I was like, well, the character sort of is my point of view. So, and I used to act, so I will just do it to get it done. Was not what I wanted to do. (laughs) So I wrote very embarrassing things for me to do. No one would want to pretend. I just have to live with the fact that I'm on camera spitting out semen. And I am. And that's just my truth. (laughs) I didn't write that for myself wanting to do that. I just thought the story needed it. I honestly thought the story needed it. I did because I did a body switching comedy, sex comedy, where couples switch bodies magically because I wanted, the reason I made the movie, I wanted to explore my fears of marriage and relationships with through this movie. And I just thought to switch back, there's going to have to be a sex scene back if that's how it happened and a silly one. And if we're going to explore, what's it like to be a man or a woman? You're going to have to have that scene. (laughs) Like if you really want to explore it, right? So it's there because I thought it needed it. It's disgusting. Uh, And on top of that, I was so uncomfortable with being myself sexual on camera like that, that I said to the actor, I don't want to like kiss on camera for the first time. Like it's going to be uncomfortable. So like, what do you say before we film? Like, and this is like completely, you can say no. I was really about consent. And this is pre 2018. I was like, should we just like kiss just to get over with? And like, you know, I'll be really respectful and stuff. And we did that. It was actually super helpful because I learned that it does not feel real at all to kiss in that kind of pretense. It just feels like you're just doing a thing you have to do. And there's nothing sexy about a sex scene at all, which was a surprising discovery. And it was a relief. But I'm really thankful that actor, like I was, I just felt so icky and weird about all of it going I'm like, I'm really not trying to like do something to you. I'm just like, want the performance to happen. When I meet in my trailer, it was, it was one of those. And you're like, please, but it's not, but it's not, but, but can we? I was just so uncomfortable and he was such a good sport to be like, well, if, to make you comfortable. <sighs> I guess I'll kiss you to make you comfortable. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, like, you know, this is a crazy thing. So in film school, our editing class was the friggin' best. We had a section on editing sex scenes and we learned that actually, especially in the seventies, but throughout cinema history, there's been actual sex in dramatic films. And Ang Lee, he did this one movie they actually had sex in the scene and he was like, I think the movie needs it. And the actors were all like completely consenting to it. And he had such anxiety and dreaded it. Like he just was trying to do something artistic. And if you're not a creep, it's completely uncomfortable <laughs> for you as a director. Like you feel bad. So you're talking about a situation with your own movie where you were the writer, director, and now I hear reluctant star, not that one of the people who set out to do that. Can you say a little about even whether you would take a script or not if you're finding things that are in it? that you're like, this is going to be a lot more painful to do than the writer probably knew. I remember just hearing a interview with Neil Gaiman saying like, oh yeah, I wrote this story and you know the characters fall down in the mud, but now that we're, we're making a screen version, I feel so bad that I wrote any of that in there, just that, that I have to have human beings going through this trauma. It's always so funny. Most shows that are filmed in New York are still written in Los Angeles. And then those writers will come out there and we're like, oh man, we're sorry we threw you out here in the snow. <laughs> They would always write these exteriors in the winter and you're in the friggin' snow and you're never in the snow for one hour. You're in the snow for 12 hours or overnight. Like every like superhero thing that films in New York, it's always superheroes on rooftop overnights. And you're talking like we're, we're getting to work at 7 p.m. and working till 7 a.m. Because you want to see those rooftops. You want to see the New York skyline. And we do that regularly versus Los Angeles. You do a lot more stage work and you don't have to do overnights much. But yeah, a lot of times people don't realize how painful or uncomfortable something might be when it's written. And certainly if you don't have to make people uncomfortable, if the story doesn't need it, then sure, don't do it. But 
a lot of times you do need things to be uncomfortable for art. <laughs> you just <laughs> It's a rough, I mean, I have so many health problems from working on set for all these years, like a knee problem and like a TMI, but whatever. I damaged my bladder from holding it too long on set. I actually damaged it. It's just not glamorous when you're actually, it's filthy. You're always dirty in dirty locations <laughs> when you're on set. Sometimes. Erica, how come you haven't made stage seem so non-glamorous? Why have I, what? Yeah, I mean, after all this time, it still seems like that's a really neat thing that you're doing. I feel like all these people who are doing TV and film are putting themselves through misery, and you're up on stage for a couple hours doing your thing. Lazing away. It seems (laughs) like it's just a a lot more fun. Just lounging in my backstage area that's That's super spacious. No, it's not like that. It's gross. Backstages are gross and they stink and there's mold everywhere and there's not enough space. Yeah. Thank you. That's all I wanted. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's awful. I have had some really great ones actually, but we won't talk about those. But that's, you know, all film actors want to, you know, do stage. They say they they don't want to accept the lower paycheck. That's the thing. The money is in. Yeah. That's the thing. But they all want that live feeling of like the audience. Because for example, I've had a hard time directing stand-up actors there is one actress once I worked with, and now she does a lot more stuff, but it was one of the first things I ever asked this actress to do, uh, or she hadn't done a lot of film, and she was just had such a hard time with doing a lot of takes. Like The crew has to be quiet. like No one can laugh, because that would mess up the take. But she felt like she almost spiraled into a dark place because she wasn't getting any laughs for what she was doing. And I've seen that with other uh, stand-up actors, too, like, They hate being in that environment. It's so uncomfortable for them. I can see how the film industry would benefit people who really like to get things right, who like to be like creative, yes, but they also like have a vision of, okay, we have this much time. It's going to cost this much money to do it. So I need to do X, Y, and Z and do this many different types of takes so that the director gets all that they need. Even Steven Spielberg, who is one of the greatest living directors, filmmaking is so hard that he still struggles at every single project and has a very hard time. Yes, he has a certain... People like him have a certain genius when they get to the set that they completely know. Like, you know, a real good director knows exactly how many shots they need and exactly how many takes they need. Like, sometimes you call it like your coverage is how many different shots. It's like, how are you covering the scene? Like a wide, a tight, whatever. If you're afraid of the producers or you're not as experienced, you're going to like water down the coverage and get so many angles because you like at least know I won't get in trouble. I'm going to deliver every angle and then the editing room will have everything. No one will yell at me. But like a really experienced Spielberg type, like they know exactly what shots they need. Orange is the New Black, for example, never use their wide shots. They'd always kind of film them, but they never use their wide shots. And the sound department stopped miking the wide shots for the wide because you know you'd go it like they'd mic it but like they wouldn't wire everybody because you have like a cast of 20 people on camera and so when it would go in tighter like okay now I can get my microphone tighter where it needs to be and just get who I need uh, and I don't need to do all that because like they start noticing that it's just never use the wides but they'd always shoot them I guess just in case but just knowing what you need that's just an example of like oh we're never going to use this shot it's just not the style of the show you talk about two people talking, like a wide close-up, close-up. Where are your shots? Like what kind of shots you're going to use can get more complicated is actors move. They move their bodies. And any, every time an actor moves their body, it changes where the camera needs to be. One of my favorite close-ups in cinema history. I'm actually a really big Arnold Schwarzenegger fan. <laughs> my favorite movies are actually not comedy. My favorite movie of all time is Terminator 2. And also Predator's up there. But there's this gratuitous 
bicep close up. It's if you remember the moment, Dylan, you son of a bitch. They like high five and you see the two biceps like just bulge out of their arms. It is wonderful because there's never a need to cut to biceps when people say hi to each other, which kind of makes it funny and like even highlight because the shot is so unnecessary and gratuitous. It highlights the biceps even more because you're as an audience are like, why am I looking at this? (laughs) And they give you this reason as like, enjoy these biceps. (laughs) Just enjoy. (laughs) They're ridiculous. Enjoy them. See, I'm trying to think of an example now where somebody just, you know, has every time this character shows up, we're for sure going to cut to their ass just totally gratuitously. But just because that's it's like their their theme music. I think about Cameron Diaz in the mask, right? Like, oh, she shows up. So we're going to do that leg thing because she's not a person. She's just legs. And we do that. And in a way, though, it's kind of like I have. It's fun to look at hot people in cinema. (laughs) So like, I think that there's a way to have fun with it and enjoy it. As long as you just treat the characters like human beings. For me, it's fun to either look at people who are really beautiful or people who have just a weathered, grizzled face. And I just want to look at those wrinkles and think about the stories. That's a trend too. Like sometimes people call it poverty porn, but like oh. Mayor, <laughs> Mayor of Eastwick kind of thing of like, we're not going to wear makeup. But like they actually are wearing like lots of makeup, but it's like a look of not makeup. <laughs> and PS people are like not wearing makeup on camera. It's just a technical thing. Like your face is going to have shine that will not match the environment because of these fake lights. You got to put some powder on them or if there's a red dot on someone's face, it's going to be totally distracting. So like basic makeup on men and women is necessary as a, a technicality. So I want to push back or ex- explore a little more. You're saying that, you know, directing comedy is really, it's just like directing anything else. And so we've just been really talking about directing in general, but there has to be something, you know, maybe it's just your take on comedy that if people are like hamming to the camera, well, that's going to be just terrible comedy. So good comedy is just play it dramatically straight and the material is funny, and maybe the music will punctuate something. You know, it has to be more subtle than that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I learned this lesson when I was 18 years old, freshman in college, first semester, because I always wanted to be a comedian. and was like a jokester, class clown, and I just ha- always had that in me. And it was intro to acting, and I forget this scene we did on the very first day of class, and that teacher was like, stop trying to be funny, just be the scene. And one of the biggest cult books of the comedy world, the UCB world, the improv world is this thing called Truth in Comedy by Del Close and Jarna Halpern. And like all the improv and comedy enthusiasts treat it like a Bible. Things change. Like that book, I think, came out in the late 90s. And there's been more since then that might be new Bibles or, you know, whatever. But it really is the spine of improv and comedy performance is like commitment and just really executing. I would say comedy actors can handle drama. Drama actors can't necessarily handle comedy. And there's a reason for that. There's that commitment. There's that ability to be ugly, the ability to be foolish. There's a sense of like a vanity or self-awareness that some actors have. But truly an excellent dramatic actor is going to be hilarious and something. It's just if you can artfully, faithfully execute something, But I, for example, prefer to direct comedies and prefer to write them. And it's just a natural instinct that lives in me to find the playful moments in scenes. Here's the funny thing I noticed. or So even things that are incredibly painful or dramatic, you'll find the funny thing, which is also something that we do in real life. So it's rooted in something real. Drama for me, it's like, 
it's such a reflection of who I am as a person. Even in serious situations, I'll see what's funny or, or weird. So I just need to do comedy. I can do drama and I like doing dramatic scenes, but it just, there's that sense of playfulness that comes. But yeah, you know that a lot of times your favorite comedy actor does their first drama and they're like amazing at it. Like, you know, our Robin Williams or Adam Sandler. Yeah, he did Punch Drunk Love and Jim Carrey. They are really famous for, oh, now they did a dramatic movie. Or Sarah Silverman. I smile back. I mean, Jamie Foxx. Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell was one that got me because I was just like, he played completely opposite of who he actually is. I still found moments to laugh, but it had nothing to do with him trying to be funny. It was all because he was so desperate. And he commits, like the Will Ferrell thing is he just stays being that fucking guy, like whatever guy he's being. Some drama actors have hangups they need to get over. Like they need to get over being ugly. Some drama actors have studied improv, not in terms of comedy. There's just like straight up acting improv. Those ones can do comedy. They just have to be able to be in the moment and flow to wherever, which is a skill you'd want any actor to have. But comedy actors more necessarily have it. And dramatic actors don't necessarily, especially if they've been like, I was casting a movie that I was supposed to do my, my second feature this in 2020 and it went away because uh, of COVID. But when I was casting that, I was sent a bunch of actors and a lot of them came from soap opera. And I was like, I'm really, I could use some of the actors who've been in soap opera stuff, but they'd have to have been in other stuff because I just don't trust someone who's been in that environment of acting to be able to handle the script. I wonder also if dramatic actors, they know when they're succeeding doing drama and they may not know if they're succeeding with comedy and there may be sort of this trust to know that it's going to happen afterward. Even as we're talking about this in these examples, and we've had these comedic actors who have succeeded, I feel like some of the most successful properties, I'm not even sure if they're comedies or they aren't. They're just great. And they have funny moments and they have dramatic moments. And Barry comes to mind on HBO with Bill Hader. And there are some really funny, funnier than some things that are supposed to be comedies in that show. But it, it's I wouldn't call it, I don't think it's a comedy. I mean, there's this old you know, joke, if it's half hour long, it's a comedy. And if it's an hour, it's a drama. Like, that's just what the Emmys were for for decades until someone finally decided that Allie McBeal was a comedy or something. But I almost wonder sometimes if drawing this distinction is just a marketing or a part of your elevator pitch in order to get something made. Those distinctions, I think, are a relationship to Hollywood's films cost a lot of money. And it's a lot of stuff doesn't make any money and they're risk averse. So sometimes People make boring or basic choices or like, we can't do this new thing because I don't know if we do it differently, it might cost us and we will fail. So we won't. And it changed very slowly that things could be different lengths and now they're streaming. So there's not like the commercial restrictions. So yeah, things just had to slowly, slowly change just because the industry is afraid of everything. But yeah, now it's different lengths. And Barry is so, I know some people who make that show and it's a mixture of comedy and drama writers in that room. There's things that are innately funny in it and he commits so deeply, but there are very hilarious situations because the stakes are so high, which is comedy loves that, improv loves high stakes. Yeah, it's both hilarious and dramatic. But there's also, for comedy to be modern and move forward, there's a sense of heart. The modern trend in comedy is things that have more, like dramedy more and things that have more depth and are more about something and explore heart. That is so much a part of Barry. Well, I was trying to prep for this by kind of looking up, okay, what are the biggest comedies on, you know, that have come out recently? And there was a Taika Waititi. It was Hunt for the Wilder People. That was it. That I started watching. I'm like, this is not actually a comedy at all. Like, it's just that the people who are cast are funny. 
but we're stretching to call this comedy whatsoever. Like, I don't think there's loud laughter going on in the theater during this. I think that definitely had some moments of both. Maybe it was just a humorous situation overall, or, or maybe it was just that kid was brilliant. The relationship between the child and what's his name, Sam, Sam Neal. Well, this was also something where I felt like because we were focusing on directing, I didn't actually have to finish anything. So I only watched the beginning of that and the beginning of Mascots, just to remind myself of what a Christopher Guest thing, like what kind of shots he does. Not a great version of it. But yeah, it seemed like this is exactly what I've gotten through four other movies. I will see it at some other point, but I'm not getting anything fundamentally different here. I really enjoy that stuff that hits on both. And Barry is an example of that. But I think also going the other side, something that's a comedy that has dramatic moments is both Scrubs and Ted Lasso, which Bill Lawrence did. You have the feeling, or I don't know, this is probably the truth, that he was pitching a comedy and then started making the show that he wanted to make as he continued to go on. And both of those shows have many wonderful comedic moments, but there's a lot of drama and heart at at the base of them as well. We've just revealed that absolute genius of Lorne Michaels to find all these people who have gone through Saturday Night Live and have gone on to be such fully versatile stars who can do comedy and can do drama. It's just an aside, but we keep hitting on all these alums from SNL as we get into what's really working. Yeah, no, he's discovered a lot of really, really amazing talent who went on to have these like big movie careers. Ted Lasso was something I did want to think about because, and maybe this gets in more of like the politic, but you know, art is political. I was bringing up Bad Trip and Ted Lasso when we spoke before doing this podcast because there's something I noticed in a few different things, but especially that, you know, we have the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter and this is affecting Hollywood and what stories we tell and white men, I think the wrong reaction to have the reaction of like, you know, they're taking our jobs and we have to be PC now and they get angry at it. Whereas things like Ted Lasso and Bad Trip to me adapted Ted Lasso has a white man with heart and compassion who is, I think, by his nature, masculine, but a different flavor of masculinity than we've been shown before, which makes it feel not modern. It makes it feel welcome. It makes it feel, I think, the fact that there's heart and warmth and kindness, it's a greater challenge to do kind comedy, but with great result because it's a fantastic show. It's super well-written and performed. And I bring up Bad Trip, which I don't think people think of on its surface as kind because it's so wild and wacky and it's Eric Andre. But unlike Borat, which is great, that movie, Borat, brings out the worst in people, you know, people are their racism or sexism or homophobia are exposed and it makes them look terrible (laughs) to a point that's useful and it's its own thing. But Bad Trip made everyone in that movie, it brought out their kindness and their desire to help. And even the interaction between Eric Andre and Lil Rel was a compassionate view of male friendships that was not the heavy weight of homophobia has has really dampened how men can interact on the screen for so long. So now if we're not going to be concerned about that, you guys can be playful and silly and kind to each other and care about each other. And so, yeah, there's a lot of really ridiculous stuff in that movie, but I, it struck me as it's so joyful and surprising and modern and unique because it made people look good and it was kind of kind. And I was like, okay, I think if you're struggling for relevancy as some a member of the status quo here's the direction to go. And this is what we haven't had before. It's not mean. So we should just explain for folks who haven't seen that. I only have actually seen the first half of this so far, but 
and there's a reason for that. The bad trip that it is like the Borat movies uses a supporting cast of real people. And occasionally there'll be a face that is blurred out, somebody that they couldn't get the permission. But mostly it seems like it was fine. And these are not like people who are come to be interviewed and so had to sign something in advance, but they're being fooled about what's going, you know, like most of the Sasha Baron Cohen interview kind of things. It's just going up to somebody on the street or, you know, being in a mall. There's a scene where he's in a bar and climbs up onto the lighting and falls off and like really looks like he's hurt himself. And so these people all look very alarmed. I have a really hard time with that kind of, I get a, you know, a very gut embarrassment thing. So I have to keep stopping something like that until I can just <laughs> kind of chill out and then go back to it. So it, it sort of blunts the humor. At the same time, I'm watching Nathan for you compulsively, which does a similar thing. And for some reason, even though, yes, I'm still stopping that every second. I love that, but Bad Trip, I'm really having a hard time with. And I got to the, I will, a minor spoiler for a scene, square in the middle where the two main characters have been connected by a finger trap by their uh, private parts. And they just approach strangers on a golf course saying, help us get out of this finger trap. And that was a little difficult. I, I can see where you're saying it brings out their compassion. But man, that is also kind of... <laughs> <laughs> putting them in a spot. It is gross. And like, I've, you know, known Eric before he made it. And he's always been really gross and really like not embarrassed to be naked <laughs> and stuff. And he's sweet. But I just, we've had so many decades of misogynist comedy that's gross and that like women are the butt of every joke and gay people are the butt of every joke. And it's just like, I personally hate The Hangover because it's so mean I thought at the end, like the bully character, like the Bradley Cooper character would get some comeuppance, but he was just a jerk and he celebrated somehow. I mean, I get if gross out stuff's not your brand because comedy is so personal and subjective in that way. It's so, you know, amenable to people's taste. But that was the only reason I brought it up. But you could also just talk about it through the Ted Lasso lens of like kind, I believe is modern and you're going to see more of it, I think. And kind can still be funny. Who knew? Absolutely. When I saw that finger trap scene, Mark, I don't know. I just thought it was funny because it's true, right? Isn't that? <laughs> Heather, Mark and I have known each other since junior high. So we've, we've seen some stuff together. Gotten caught in a few finger traps in our day. Oh, God. <laughs> it's not that the gross out humor bothered me. It was the casting it on unwitting participants who evidently signed the uh, consent form afterwards. I wonder how many times they had to do these scenes. And again, sort of bringing this back to direction. I assume you have to shoot this scene many times with various dupes to see which one is the most entertaining. Well, with something like that, it's not narrative. So it's unscripted. So actually, they may not have filmed it many times, but they probably tested it out or like rehearsed it. They probably did. <laughs> they, they didn't have to. So like a prank thing is a totally different type of directing than narrative. But you still try to build scenes in the edit room and stuff, you know. Like documentary, you know, I said TV is the writer's medium, feature films is the director's medium, documentaries, in a lot of ways, it's the editor's medium. That's where you write the whole thing. Heather, where can we find more of your work? And I know that the worst question to ask anybody is, like, what are you working on now? And clearly, I know you're already working on sound for several things, but you have had already like a really exciting career. And maybe people don't know your name, but either they will soon or they can follow what you're doing because you seem to constantly be producing. I'm always making stuff and the sound thing pays the bills. Things are going well now, so I could talk about things that are happening. I'm always doing everything I possibly can. Like I moved to LA 
because this is really the home of the industry from my home in New York City because I just want to do everything I can to get to, you know, direct the bigger budget stuff. And it's very hard to graduate up to that next level. But you know, I will. And I keep doing this. I've written like five features and I've written three TV pilots. I just want my stuff getting made. But I'm always trying. Um, Right before pandemic, I had two things going great. Like I had this live show called Dream Roll, where I would write an original monologue for six different actors every show. That was some part they'd never played before. I've always wished to play. And the first show was great, sold out, got press. The second show is going to be March 15th. Didn't happen. And I'd love to bring that back. But the person I collaborated on that show with has become, over the pandemic, we realized how well we work together. She's an actress. Her name is Alicia Hanna. We've formed a production company together. And we do have some projects in the work that are going really great and seem like they're going to get made. So I'm psyched about that. Because like I said, I had a movie I was supposed to direct in 2020, got pushed from April to October, and I didn't think it was safe at that point. So they used a different director, which is okay, but it made me sad. (laughs) And so I do actually have a docu-series in the mix and a narrative that I'm developing. And I've been put forward to direct some commercials lately that I'm pitching, you know, it's like, that's the way the life goes. And just doing sound randomly. I'm day playing right now where I just do days here and there on different TV shows and movies. I need an extra person. That's what I'm up to. It's heatherfink.com. You can find stuff there. You can find my feature inside you. I put it on YouTube for free. Like it was on different streaming platforms, but I couldn't get it international and they didn't pay very well anyway. So I was like, screw it. Like I put it up in March 2020 for everyone to see. And my favorite short I ever made, I feel, is my short alleged, a short comedy thriller based on a real court case against Steven Seagal. And I think it has my unique voice as a filmmaker. And that's why (laughs) I like people to watch it. Yes, I enjoyed that one a lot as a tribute to low budget documentary ish action. I don't know, a bunch of seedy things. Yes, the music especially. The music killed me. (laughs) The thriller tropes. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining us, Heather. Yeah, thank you so much. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.